Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are continuing to record this podcast remotely for the safety of our guests and our team. So, on with the show. A very Merry Christmas. Hello and welcome to a super special edition of White Wine Question Time. On today's show, as our Christmas gift to you, we are reuniting some of the country's best-known school children from the most famous senior school of the 80s. yes. Today's episode is a Grange Hill reunion, bringing together four of the show's best-known characters to talk life beyond and then behind the school gates of the fictitious school that was the heartbeat of the BBC's 30-year long-running soap, portraying life in a typical secondary school. The show was created by Phil Redman, who went on to devise Brookside and Hollyoaks with the late Oscar-winning Anthony Minghella on script editor duties. The show was BAFTA award-winning must-see TV for all children of the 80s. It tackled groundbreaking, hard-hitting storylines in a way that no other show at the time did, from racism, drug addiction, bullying, learning difficulties and underage sex to rape, homosexuality and gun crime. But arguably, its finest hour came with Zamo's heroin addiction storyline, which spawned the cast's anti-drug single, Just Say No, which took them into the top 10 and over to the White House where they performed for Nancy Reagan. It was massive news at the time. Newsround were all over it. But what happened to the cast after school was let out? Well, today we're going to find out. Let's introduce the class of White Wine Question Time. (laughs) 
first up, it's Lee McDonald, the man who made Zamo a household name from 1981 to 1987 with his infamous heroin storyline. Lee left the show intending to become a professional boxer, but at the age of 21, whilst he was in his dad's van, they were hit by a car that was being chased by the police at 90 miles an hour. Lee was thrown 47 feet through the air and suffered severe head injuries, which put paid to his ambitions for a career in boxing. He now runs a locksmith business in Surrey called Mentor Lock and Safe in Wallington. And last year, he appeared for three episodes as bus driver Terry in EastEnders, a father to a son and a stepdaughter. He's now 52 and I'm guessing is still recognised pretty much every day as Zamo all these years on. Lee, it's a pleasure to have you. A happy Christmas to you. Uh, yeah, it's good to be here. It's good to be here. How are you? Life treating you well? Yeah, really well. Yeah, I'm busy with it. I mean, this year's just been the weirdest year ever, hasn't it? It's, uh, it, it's been bizarre. Oh, yeah. And I've just seen you got you recently engaged, Lee. You've popped the question. I did. Yay. I know. We got, we got engaged um, on the, I think it was the 21st of, of, um, of March when lockdown was on. Ah. We was booked in a hotel and it got cancelled. And I had to run round to different places to try and find a venue and no one would accept us. So uh, we went to the hotel. We were going to get married this year, but obviously it all got cancelled. Oh, my God. It's, it's, like, it's like the tale of Mary and Joseph, but lockdown yes. style. <laughs> I, was trying to, I was ringing churches and everything, saying, look, can I just borrow your venue? For? And they were like, nah, nah, not having any of it, not even on the step. <laughs> We managed to go to the hotel just for the uh, for the room. They let us in there, but then obviously the wedding plans of everything's been put on hold now until possibly, hopefully next year, maybe the year after, depending on how we go next year. Keeping everything, including my eyes crossed for you. Next up is Linda Magistris. She played Susie McMahon from 1979 to 1981. Susie, you may remember, dated Alan Humphreys and was always stressed because her parents put huge, enormous academic pressure on her. She also liked a little bit of judo. It was on Grain Chill, in fact, that Linda went on to meet the love of her life, director Graham Theakston, who she'd run into some 30 years later and fall in love with whilst working as a QVC presenter. Sadly, after eight very happy years together, Graham passed away in 2014 with a rare form of cancer, inspiring Linda to set up the Good Grief Trust, a charity that brings all bereavement services together under one umbrella. Now 57, she's the mother of two grown-up children and her work with the Good Grief Trust has become her full-time vocation. Linda, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks. As Lee said, happy Christmas, everyone. Um, Merry yeah. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Um, yeah, no, it's been an incredible year. Um, obviously, it's been incredibly sad for so many hundreds of thousands of people. And, and that's, yeah, as you say, that's what I've sort of dedicated my life since Graham died, really, in 2014. Yeah, so we launched four years ago. And we bring all those bereavement services together so that we can offer immediate support anyone who's been bereaved anywhere in the country so I'm on a bit of a mission it was really sad when Graham died and I was like really struggling I know what other people can can really go through so we need to offer them help and hope um very very quickly um but yeah I mean it's a long way from Grange Hill but it was weird that you know I spent all that time with Graham and then suddenly uh, all this has come out of it so yeah I like to think that something good has come out of something quite sad yeah very tragic very tragic, but making a real positive and helping so many. Thank you, Linda. Now, sitting alongside her today, virtually, sadly, is our next guest. It's Mark Baxter, who played Dwayne Orpington from 1980 to 1984. Now, Dwayne 
you may remember, had a very violent father. And he was involved in the gripper racism storyline. But Mark was forced to leave the show, sadly, due to ill health. Suffering with Crohn's disease, he was rushed to hospital where he spent the next six months of his young life. And doctors then went on to discover cancerous cells in his bowel, which were thankfully removed. And he is now, all these years on, still successfully living with cancer. Uh, no longer acting, he's turned his hands to many things over the years. He was uh, working with the first ever UK karaoke company. He became a qualified London tour guide and is a black cab driver who now teaches aspiring black cabbies how to pass the knowledge, which if you don't live in London and understand um, how, how difficult that is, is basically a degree. Mark Baxter, thank you for joining us. How are you, sir? Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm very good, thank you. You are teaching. One of the hardest courses there is, not just, just here in the UK, but in the world, the knowledge. Yeah, it's um, 26,000 roads. I love it. Seven years of study. It's like becoming a doctor, but with a steering wheel. Yeah, absolutely. And our final guest is Alison Bettles, who played Faye Lucas between 1982 and 1987, having found fame a year earlier, starring in the Green Cross Codad with Bob Carroll G's and Spit the Dog. Faye famously had an affair with one of her teachers, Mr. King. It brought about the downfall of the rather hunky math teacher and shattered her dreams of becoming a sports teacher. Alison had studied at the Sylvia Young Stage School from the age of eight, and when she landed the role on Grange Hill, her mum also joined the show as a professional chaperone. After leaving, Alison appeared as a young Ethel Skinner without her little Willie in EastEnders spin-off Civvy Street, which looked back at the early lives of some of the EastEnders' senior residents. She gave up performing in the 90s to raise four children and has since qualified as a beauty therapist. She's run a recruitment company. She has now got a fruit and veg business with her son, Arthur, and is studying to become a counsellor and intending to go back to uni next year. Two of her children are acting, one in Doctor Who, the other in EastEnders, and the family have just finished rebuilding their dream home, which meant that they spent six, six months living in a caravan on site. It's now done, complete with four dogs, seven chickens and a duck. Alison, thank you so much for joining us. What a busy house you've got. Yes, it's quite a busy house, yep. We, we did have five ducks, but the foxes got four of them. Um, and the chickens are just ongoing, really. We, we do let them free range, but as soon as you free range them, the foxes eat them as well. So, um, yeah, we've got, we keep them in a coop now. Um, but yeah, I'm quite enjoying living the, um, the messy life, really. Ah, you sound like Felicity Kendall's uh, a, a long lost daughter on the good life i could see by the way uh, you all greeted each other when we logged on that you're all still in touch to some degree aren't you how how is the friendship all these years on i mean we're talking 30 years plus aren't we yeah for over 40 years i mean we were 40 yeah, oh my God. that's amazing we had a big reunion didn't we a couple of years ago because it was our 40th anniversary so we did a huge reunion because I haven't seen anyone for ages. I know Lee had probably kept in touch with a few people. There have been a few reunions. I've missed all of them. So, but we all got together for a real biggie. We went back to BBC TV Centre, didn't we? We went back to Elstree, uh, raising money for the Good Grief Trust, actually. But it was amazing to see everyone because I haven't seen anyone for 40 years. <laughs> really? You haven't seen each other, but obviously there is still some contact and connection. Yeah, we see each other a little bit, Lee, from time to time on different things, don't we? But... And Mark, yeah, actually, on a, on a few things. I think with us, we did the, uh, the Just Say No reunion in 2005, didn't we, with Justin Lee Collins? And that was the first time we'd met each other. And I think since then, we sort of swapped numbers and stuff. And obviously, because of social media now, you keep in contact a lot. I messaged um, 
uh, Linda today, and only recently um, my dad passed away. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Lee. Which has been, you know, been really, really sad. Uh, but again, I didn't know where to, to reach out to. My mum's been really struggling. And um, and Linda has been amazing. Um, so, you know, I can't thank Linda enough. So, you know, all these years and we're still helping each other out, which is, which is, which is un, you know, unbelievable. And I speak to Roland Erkin quite a bit, probably once a week, once a fortnight. So, yeah, we're still in touch. Got that special bond, you know, me and Alison and that. Obviously, we grew up together. Our teenage years are growing up together. So that's always going to be really special in my heart. And I loved it. We we did ask Gherkin to come on the show, but he's 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 recovering from a about a of bad health. So um, wish him well from us, won't you, Lee? Yeah, he has been um, in the hospital having bits done, but he's on the road to recovery now. That's good to hear. We all worry about. I love that you call him Roland as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know Roland because because people speak to me about him or speak to characters, they just speak to them. Even in my shop, people come in and older guys call me Zam or Zamo, but they've done that for years <laughs> and they don't do it as it like they're they're taking the mick or anything. They just go, "Oh, Zam, can you come over and do this for me?" <laughs> I just did it earlier when we were setting up all the technicals on this. I called Alison Faye. I'm sorry about that, Alison. I'm used to it now, so <laughs> you just go along with it. It is something that, that all these years on, we all still talk about you guys. You are a, a, a cultural shorthand. You know, just say no. You know, if, if you ever hear of somebody kind of getting heavily into drugs, you give them, you know, all right, Samo, calm down. You know, <laughs> it is it is like bywords. How yeah. is it for you guys? How is it living with almost that legend, if that's, if that's not too strong a word? I mean, 1978, when you think about what the country was like in 1978, right? And you saw this programme come along for the very first time that children were allowed to play children. Before then, we had comic ripoffs like the Fen Street Gang, where adults play children. And for the BBC to take the chance on allowing proper teenagers to take the lead, and remembering that all the steps that led to, you, you know, the, the, the chances that they took, um, you know, going with the bra, let's say, to start with, you sort of go on to the aspect of the racism, you know, with the gripper story so you know so it was all it was the script writers taking the chances to lead up to some of the most you know historic storylines ever i just um i didn't even realize it was that popular to be honest i think because we grew up at the age of 10 um just you know we were still going to school and doing our own thing and, and working together it was just like we were growing up as friends but having a little hobby so I never, ever realised how popular it was. Didn't particularly watch it, you know. If I, if I was home, I'd watch it. Um, it's only later in life that I think I've started to realise how, how popular it is. Um, and I've got a young child still. I had a big gap. I've got an eight-year gap between my youngest and my eldest. My eldest is 28 and then my daughter's 15. And... Um, and she goes to school still and she gets, you know, a lot of people say to her, oh, my God, you look like your mum. And the PE teacher or the drama teacher will go, oh, my God. But to me, like, we, we you know, I, I'm amazed that people even still recognise us. But you do walk down the streets and people are still shouting out Faye or Zamo. And 
I'm just amazed that people still know it so well. Nuts, isn't it? It really has stuck. And I think because it came along and it spoke about the stuff that nobody else tackled, those storylines, as much as they feel every day now, we've got to remember that this was at a time when that stuff wasn't discussed, certainly not amongst children. Um, and it went to so many millions of people because there were four channels. And you, you know, and, and only two yeah. of them broadcast children's shows, BBC and ITV. So you had a captive audience to land these really quite important storylines. Yeah, and it was all real. I mean, I did the bullying one with learning judo, and I still can do it now. I can, I can, I can hold somebody's <laughs> on my shoulder. It's amazing, and I'm like so proud of that. I got taught how to do judo, but you know, Susie was bullied, and 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 this, you know, the, the character wanted um, um, her to do her homework for her and she was like no 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 I'm gonna fight you and it was just amazing to and and those those sort of storylines were just the first time anyone has ever done that and it as you said it gave those kids sort of just permission to say actually hang on a minute yeah someone's doing that to me maybe I can stand up for that and that I don't think that's ever been done well clearly it hadn't been done before so yeah it, it was groundbreaking it's so exciting yeah brilliant I think it mirrored a lot of really genuinely what was happening in playgrounds all over the country. And yet on telly, everything was far too twee to tackle it until then. But then when you look at the people that you had driving those storylines, especially your big one, Lee, with the heroin addiction, Anthony Mingella, I beg your pardon. Unbelievable, because they called my mum up for a meeting, uh, Phil Redman and Anthony, and said, look, does we're going to do this storyline. But at that time, my parents had no idea about heroin or anything. So... We took it on, yeah, just to do it. And then it wasn't until we started researching and going to drug rehabilitation centers, what a big storyline that was going to be. Um, and it was only sort of halfway through that you see the demise of Zamo. And, and the reason they chose Zamo is they could have picked Gripper and it would have just been, yeah, Gripper's got involved with drugs, you know, same old story. But they chose um, a nice character or to show that anybody can get involved with drugs. And it was more hard hitting for the audience to see. It would have been so cliche for, for Gripper to get involved with drugs, but like, yeah, that's obvious. But to use a character that was quite, you know, quite well loved as a character to to downfall over heroin and stuff was was amazing. And on the back of that, we got the call to, to sing Just Say No, which was, you know, unbelievable. And I couldn't sing. I remember getting taken to a room. And they said, do the arpeggio or <laughs> the Greek island. And I started singing. They went, right, you can't sing anymore. Uh, then I can't dance and I do weightlifted in the video. So for me, it was a real flop of the video. But, um, you know. I wondered why you were weightlifting in the video. You see, I can't dance, so I'm weightlifting in it. But, <laughs> the charts were different then. We were coming every Monday, and it was it was only done to raise money for rehabilitation centres, and it was 100 in the charts. We're coming next Monday, it'd be 47, then 36. And we were like, wow, we're number five in the charts on top of the pops and doing all that. It was just like, at 16, was mad. And then to go to the White House, went to Yankee Stadium, we sang in there, went to Central Park, see Nancy Reagan. At the time, it it, it wasn't as big as it is now. I look back at it now and even people say to me, you went to the White House to see Nancy Reagan. That is the most maddest thing. And I watch all of these um, drug things, the uh, Escobar and all of that. And I didn't realise at the time, Nancy Reagan's on that show, on them shows, 
because it was all the drugs coming in the 80s. They were trying to stop the Just Say No companies all over that. So I'm still part of that, which I'm really proud of. And it was, you know, as much as um, uh, as it was good for us, it was a good campaign and it was very positive. And I still get people say now because of that, they don't take drugs or they, you know, they've had to think about what they did or, or why they did it. So, you know, it was a very good impression. And as much as it gets the mick taken out of it it's still people remember it and i get people come up to me say this i know at least once a week once a fortnight oh, i bet you do you must yeah. do but you know what lee yeah. it really did have a massive impact i can still remember there was a scene where you're in the toilet in a cubicle and you're on the floor and you're all scabby around the mouth and I, because you're absolutely right, they gave it to you as a character because everybody loved Zamo. He was cheeky, he was silly, but he was harmless. And then suddenly Zamo got lost and into this kind of pit of heroin. It scared the shit out of me. I, I put me off drugs. It did the job. And yeah, everybody else around me at the time, you know, it was it was massively impactful. And that scene you're talking about, I remember vividly, it's where Erkan Roland comes into the toilet. And it was the first time ever Grange Hill never done music on the credits. And it just did a it just did a pan in close-up um, of that character. And I got so much response after that episode because they thought Zamo was gonna die. And I think there was talk of Zamo dying initially, the character being killed off. But the audience is so young at that time that had been too hard hitting for so that to get him coming back in next series he went to rehabilitation centers and got better but yeah them them scenes that i did with urkin and that are even now and there's one where i steal off my mum there's one where i hit jackie in the changing room and i lick the drugs off the floor and them scenes are just you know in my head they're so so vivid and they were really well filmed by bbc they've done brilliantly that's and then you you know so Anthony had to ring up your mum and dad to make sure that you were all okay with you tackling this storyline, yeah. Anthony was in constant uh, constant contact with my mum all the time uh, and felt about making sure that it hadn't affected me because it was quite a big storyline to take on. So they were in constant contact with my parents all throughout. But um, I don't think we I never knew, and my parents at the time didn't know what an impact it would have and what a big storyline it was. But yeah, the BBC were brilliant with keeping me up, you know, making sure everything was okay. Now, Alison, I know you went to the White House. You managed to, and you did Top of the Pops. Linda, were you part of the of the cast at that time? No, I'm a lot older than these two, CK. <laughs> so I was like... Well, I'm looking at you and I'd never know. Thank you so much. No, definitely Thank not. you so much. No, I, I did all the earlier episodes, like, you know, sort of the original series, and then these guys came in later. So I, I went into Tucker's Larker afterwards, and then I, I left and I did my own thing. But, yeah, I mean, all those later storylines are just incredible. But what you were saying, Lee, is, is really clever that Phil, you know Redmond did is that they chose characters that wouldn't normally um, be sort of associated with that storyline like mine for the bullying you know she Susie was so meek and mild and goody two-shoes but she showed by just doing it in the right way you know by learning this judo and having Alan teach it and she did it in the right way you know she got her own back and she showed that women can be strong so it was just really clever script writing I think the whole thing was fabulous yeah I love that judo was so important. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> 
the fact that, you know, we went to the White House was pretty amazing. So if I'm sort of having some banter with the kids, I'll say to them, oh, have you met Nancy? <laughs> oh, no, you haven't met Nancy, have you? No, but I did. Have you played Yankee Stadium? I have. <laughs> yeah, have you sung in the um, Yankee Stadium? But just, you know, yeah. as, as the kid yeah. sat at home watching all of this unfold on Newsround, right, because literally you were all over Newsround. I think there might even been a Newsround special. Um, watching you all at the White House, I think you wore an amazing jumper, Alison. I can remember it so vividly. It just felt I epic know I had to me. Shoulder, shoulder pads, they were huge. Alison, you said that you kind of didn't even realise how big and successful it was, but surely you must have been like the most famous teenagers in Britain at that time. We were. I mean, like you said, there was only um, four channels, so it there wasn't a lot of choice like there is now. So um, everybody, I think it was something like 11 million used to watch it. So, um, yeah, as Lee said, you get the same things. One of the other things that you get and you still get now is you'll be walking along and someone recognises you and they all go, did it, did it. And I'm sure they think they're the only people that has ever done it. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's all the same jokes and we've had them same jokes for like 40 years now. You so you know what's I'm coming. not going to crack any. I've, I promise not to try. But I think because we were just young kids growing up, we didn't realise it. It wasn't it wasn't like it is now, I don't think. You know, you did it and you went home. Now if you're on the telly, if you've been in something for a certain amount of time, you're on everything. You know, I mean, we did do, um, we did Saturday swap shop. We did every tis was, you name it, we did it. Spit the dog, we did all of them. But, yeah, I mean, every, what's that, Roland Rat. I remember doing Roland Rat on GMTV one time. And um, and I was talking to Roland the rat, and I I was yeah he was a real rat. I was just chatting to him like he was a person. And then you realise that I mean I don't know if this goes out to you. Sorry to spoil anything, but he's a no, cat no, thing no. sitting on someone's head. <laughs> I know. I think I did Basil Brush once. That was a fun. <laughs> boom oh, boom. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so, yeah, we had some brilliant times and it's only when you get together like this and you look back at the times you did have because you just carry on your normal life. You forget it all. But all of a sudden you start chatting about it. It's like, yeah, do you remember that? And do you remember that? I mean, incredible times, really. You're going out to 11 million people. You're on all the big TV shows. And yet, unlike anything that would be allowed to happen today, you just sort of seeped back into your regular lives you were able to do that there was no social media none of the the trappings that come with whatever young actors or stars have to deal with today yeah yeah I think it was really tough which is I didn't let my kids stay doing it they um Albert did um Doctor Who um he done a month filming um he was about seven but he looked about five because he was quite little um and he played the um the empty child and um, he went to school one day and he came home and he said to me, Mum, I've got all these friends. And it was like, and I thought, that's it. You ain't doing it no more. So all of mine have done stuff, but I just don't want them doing really? it. Just, just, yeah. yeah, it was a decision that I made. I just thought, no, I just, we had normal lives. We are normal. But I just felt that I wanted the kids to be totally normal I can remember thinking, I just want to be a secretary. I just want to go up London. I don't want no one to know who I am. 
I want to not laugh if I don't want to laugh, but, you know, you get people, why are you not laughing today? What's the matter with you? Or, you know, the pressures is, is immense. And I just thought, I don't want my kids going through that. Because that's, well, that's really interesting because your kids were really in some very big shows. You had one, your, your, son, your son in Doctor Who and then your other son in EastEnders. But not, I mean, I mean, your experiences, how did they compare with today's working child actor? Yeah, well, I, like we all did, I mean, I fell into this. I didn't even go to a stage school. I was just at a, a normal comprehensive school. Um, so I fell into everything by mistake, got the part, you know, just just was totally like a normal girl just going to a comprehensive school. And, um, and I could just see my kids going the same way. Um, so my daughter, she, she, you know, she really wants to do it. And she did a few commercials when she was younger. And I just thought this is going to happen to her as well. And I just said, that's it now. You know, I don't want you doing it anymore. So that was it. Just stopped them. They'll probably kill me later. But... You obviously feel very strongly about it though, Alison. And, you know, and obviously you've walked that path. So Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't know if everyone else thinks the same. What do you guys yeah. think? Would you let your kids do what you did? Uh, my two are really techy. My two are computer geeks, which is amazing. So nothing to do with what I've done at all. So I don't know where they get it from. But I know what you mean, Alison. It's really worrying because I think nowadays, I mean, even, you know, for, for what I do, which is quite high profile as far as the charity goes, and you get, you know, you, you do get lots and lots of people sort of interacting with you. And, and you, yeah, it is a concern. And I think if we were around now doing grain chill now with the massive reach that it's got it would be worrying really really would because i mean social media is open to to anything isn't it anyone and everything so it can be really good and it can be really bad so yeah i would probably be a bit cautious nowadays i think back then 40 years ago it was different it was so innocent we were just so innocent we were just growing up and as you said it was just it was just a really fun thing to do and we were just growing up on on air and you know all these little adventures that i had were were just amazing and, I, and I, I just have fantastic, really positive memories. But I think, I think nowadays, I think it could be completely different. Yeah. Oh, I know. I hear you. And Mark, how did you find being one of the most famous school children in Britain? Uh, well, I think that probably at the time we took it for granted. You know, we just sort of thought, ah, you know. But looking back on it, we were the luckiest teenagers, the luckiest teenagers of our time. And you think? Absolutely. I mean, without doubt. Without doubt, you, if you look at the path that people that, that television took after Great and Chill, just just children's television alone, it, it led to shows like Biker Grove, right? So we may not have an Ant and Deck, let's let's put it, you know, without Great and Chill, of which, to be perfectly honest, um, because Great and Chill was so huge at the time, we had some candidates. Lee was one of them. If Lee and Lee Sharp would have stayed as a duo who played Jonah in our, you know, in our show. When you look at some of the, the Saturday morning shows, they would have been absolutely perfect because they had that rapport together. They, you, you, you never know what could have happened for them. <laughs> but for, if you look at the, through the car, the years of Grange Hill, you look at the amount of child actors that have gone on to be, Oh yeah. Right. But the other, the, the, the people like, like some of us, were, were typecast after that and the, the interesting story is mm. is obviously that when when lee and allison moved from bbc center to um elstree it was they got in there just before eastenders started and phil redmond tells you the story that 
um, Julia Smith rang him and said, what are you doing? You've got our dressing rooms because <laughs> our guys had all got the, 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 the ground floor dressing rooms. And uh, he was saying, well, you, you know, first in, you can't do nothing like that. And Wendy Richards wanted Lee's dressing room, apparently. <laughs> so well done for <laughs> Do you see what I mean? So it was a lot of, a lot of kudos around. It was crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, it was fantastic. And there was some fantastic um, talent that, because Alison being one of them, um, you know, that would have gone on probably to do a lot more, but decided not to. And that was, and that was purely because we were. Yeah. What made you decide that, Alison? I decided that my mum and dad were, you know, old school parents and, um, and I wanted to bring my kids up, like, you know, having a fantastic life like I did. And um, I just thought, you don't have kids. Well, in my opinion, you know, everyone does their own thing. I just wanted to have my kids and I wanted to be with my kids. I didn't want to, I mean, I've done theatre. I was at the Liverpool Playhouse before I had the kids. And I just thought, that's great when you haven't got kids. But the last thing I wanted to do was go off here, there and everywhere and leave my children. So basically, I had the three boys together, so the 28, 25, and 23, um, and they were my life. I wanted to take their bikes up to school every day and, you know, take them swimming, and I just wanted to do all of the stuff with the kids. So that really was my decision. Okay, are you ready for your first question? I kind of want to pick up on the Anthony Minghella input to Grange Hill. And I want you to imagine yourself as him and put your scriptwriter's hat on and tell me how you would rewrite your own personal storyline, giving yourself an opportunity to rewrite or create new paths for what came next after you left Grange Hill. That is a tough, tough question, isn't it? It's like, OK, but um, I, do you know what? I'm going to I'm going to sit on the fence and I'm going to say I'm, I, I wouldn't change anything. To be honest, I think that your path is your path, and we all we all live um, our own lives, and we all have our own battles to to fight. We all have our highs and our lows. Um, we get things given to us, and we also get them taken away. Um, both Lee and I know that for the last you know the last six weeks or so that we both lost really close people to us, and. Um, so my path has been my path. Oh, I'm sorry, Mark. Yeah, I lost my brother. But uh, but I'm not bringing the time down because, it's been, you know, it's just one of the things. Oh, but, I'm um, sorry. You know, my, as it has... No, it's, listen, it's, 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 it's life in... It's life, absolutely. But um, as far as, you know, apart from me, apart from that, I don't think I changed much. I had the greatest privilege as a teenager. Um, I worked with some fantastic talent. Um, although, you know... All included on the screen, obviously, but those that were, you know, Mark Burdis was another one. We talked about Susan Tully, you know, um, you, Peter Moran, uh, Todd Carty, obviously, who goes on, Gr George. Todd, yeah, yes. Absolutely, you know, and um, also some of the, 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 the other actors that we work with, the, the grown-ups, you know, we work, we, you know, with, um, we had Robert Hartley, for instance, who was Mr. Mr. Keating, who was very old school, Brian Capron you know, serial killer. Um, you, you know, we learned such a lot. So I don't think I would change. Yes, that that's right. <laughs> I'm sitting on the fence with that one. I, I think, but I, I think that our path is our path and I've enjoyed, I've had a great life. I've had a great life. 
Well, do you know what? I, I know that you've had your own struggles with your health, with Crohn's disease and then cancer, Mark. So the fact that you wouldn't change that, um, that, that speaks volumes about your character. Oh, thank you. I use it. You can, you, you, and everybody else does the same thing. Lee does the same thing because I know that he, he's still involved heavily with the boxing and things like that. But you pass on, you, you know, you try to help those people that are going through what you actually have experienced before and you're able to speak from, as I say, ex experience. And if you can help one person through what you've been through, then you've touched one person and they will touch another and it will go on. We need a lot more of that. Lee, Mark referenced the boxing there and you were on, a, you, I mean, you were on a very determined path. You were going to be a boxer and that was that, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I did. I did really, as an amateur, I did really well. I, I boxed from seven, uh, one junior ABAs, the NABC, the school's national title was um, selected for uh, Olympics at one time. Um, and was going to turn professional when I was 21 and I had a car accident and couldn't box anymore. So I was absolutely gutted. Um, but I, I had, there was a time when I was doing Grange Hill and studio days at Grange Hill. Uh, you cannot miss them. It's the, you know, it's the biggest thing. You've done three days rehearsals. And I remember I was boxing in, in Derby um, in the evening. Um, and my dad said, you, you can't go into Grange Hill. So I went into Grange Hill pretended I had the biggest stomach ache you can imagine. My parents come pick me up, drove me up to Derby. This is really naughty. Uh, <laughs> come back the next day with a black eye in filming. So it was, yeah. um, the boxing was my, was my main thing. So if we're, if we're going to move on to that question, do you want me to answer yeah. the question? Because yeah. it's a different aspect of it. My life as I am would be, I would keep it as it is. I wouldn't change it. But if I was to grow up as Zamo, I, I, my little plan is, so me and Jackie would have left Grange Hill, it's my girlfriend in Grange Hill, would have got married, had a couple of kids, would have moved to America, I would have won a world boxing title. Then we'd come back to London, and then we go to EastEnders, and then we both run the Queen Vic. How about that? How about that? I love that. <laughs> you could still run the Queen Vic. We can make it happen. Danny Dyer's far too busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've already had a word with him. I said, you know, I'll be in there soon. <laughs> would you really like? Would you like that? Would you like to to go back to a long running drama? Yeah, I did when I would when I went back to EastEnders last year. Um, uh, I loved it and I, I would um, at the time I wasn't sure but going back just felt so natural and I knew everybody and I just thought yeah this is um, you know this is this is what I would want to do um, you know and there's talk of people coming back and characters is coming back so never say never to Terry the bus driver coming back uh, and if he does, was he yeah, a bus driver? Out. I thought I thought he was a cab driver. I got his vocation. No, he was a bus driver because they got they got me there and said, right, okay, can you just drive that forward? I said, I can't drive a bus. So they got a guy in to drive the bus, um, and I was sitting in the seat pretending that I was the bus driver. But yeah, it was amazing going back to. Uh, and when I drove up to to Grange Hill uh, to the uh, Elstree Studios, the security guard said to me, and I thought they were joking. He said, oh yeah, you can just park around there in the Grange Hill car park. 
And they still call it the Grange Hill Car Park yeah. at Street. Yeah. Um, and in the hallway, there's all pictures of us like when we were kids. And I was like a little kid. I was getting selfies done with my, myself as a, in a Grange Hill <laughs> uniform. So it, for me, it was amazing going back. I, I was like a, a, a kid in the sweet shop. I loved it. So, so Lee, you would have you would have gone off, and as your rewritten script would be, you go to you go to Hollywood, you you smash it as a boxer, you come back, you run the Queen Vic. This this is this is the life that you would love to have have, have had. That's the it's sort of a bit of me, but that's what I think Zamo would have done. He would have just uh, gone off, carried on his boxing, done that, and then run the Queen Vic, uh, a couple of kids there, and and smashing it in uh, Albert Square. But what about you? Would you as Lee McDonald? Would you? Is that what you would want for you? Um, if it, if I'd have wished for anything, it would have been that I obviously didn't have the the car accident and could have tried. Not necessarily would have become a world champion, but just that something that I wish I'd have tried or been able to try mm. uh, and to see where I would have gone. You know, I, not not saying I would have won and, and made millions, but um, it was something that I I was really passionate about and yeah. was good at at the time. And to have that taken away is my only regret in life. Otherwise, I wouldn't change anything. I've got a lovely uh, partner. I've got a gorgeous son, stepdaughter. So um, I'm happy. I mean, that was, you were so young as well, Lee, 21 years old and a, a police a police chase interrupted the dream that you yeah. had for the rest of your life. It was a nightmare. I was coming across a set of red lights uh, or uh, green lights and the police were chasing a Peugeot 205. And it hit the car at 90 mile an hour and the van span. Lucky I had no one in the van. And lucky I didn't have a seatbelt on because the, the 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 vehicle spanned several times. I went through the windscreen, but the um, the steering wheel got crushed through the driver's seat. So if I had had a seatbelt at that time, I didn't have to wear them, then I, I would be dead anyway. Uh, you know, it would have been a, a good night scenario. But... Uh, fortunately, I come out of it, but obviously with with the head injuries, I they said you can't box anymore. And it was only months before that I was about to sign a contract with uh, a promoter for quite good money because I could put bums on the seat. Um, oh, so, yeah, I gutted after that. Gutted for yeah. you, just listening, Linda. Hmm. If you had the ability to turn Anthony Minghella for a moment and rewrite what happened next for you, hmm. I'm guessing that, that Graham would still feature very heavily uh, in your life, and and that's something you would have changed in yeah, a heartbeat. Of course, I'd change. I'd change. You know, the fact that he got cancer is just too sad because he was at the pinnacle of his career and he had so much more to give. But um, it is weird how, as, as Mark said, you know, your path, I think, is your path now. I never used to be a fatalist, but I think my path is my path. Like Lee and like Alison and, uh, you know, I've got the most beautiful children and that is the, the my whole life. And I'm so, so blessed to have my children. And I've been really lucky in life, the way that, you know, my work's gone and I've sort of put together project after project. I'm a bit of a crazy entrepreneur and I love projects. And and I, I would wish that my dad was here longer. You know, my dad died 20 years ago and that, that I really would want my dad to be here to see his grandchildren, to see what I was doing and to, to be there for my mum. But all in all, it's it really weird because when Graham died, my whole life changed and I know... I get a bit emotional now. <laughs> I know that, you know, since the Good Grief Trust has been founded, we have, like, Mark is our ambassador, Todd's one of our ambassadors. There has been so much good done in the past four years, and I'm so proud of everybody who that I've been working with to change, you know, and improve the lives of people who have been bereaved. And it's just the most crazy journey, to be honest, Kate, and it's just 
thousands and thousands of people and, and it's just amazing and, and everyone's on board now and we're trying to change it and covid's changed everything everyone's life this year and it's so important that we help people who have had a bereavement and i just think it's just meant to be and, and i'm just so grateful every day i wake up and i'm so so grateful for every minute that i've got here and i just yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't change anything in that way but obviously the people who have died i i, I would want them to have longer healthy, healthier lives it's just so sad so sad but I'm just so grateful. I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude, to be honest. Just, yeah, really, really lucky. And when we talk about rewriting the past, maybe would you have, have changed the timelines so that you didn't have to wait 30 years to run into Graham again? <laughs> well, do you know what? It's weird. No, because then I have my children, you know. So if I hadn't had my children, you know, earlier on, then maybe something else wouldn't have happened. But yes, of course, it would have been amazing to meet him earlier and have a relationship. But I had the most amazing relationship with my husband. I've got two amazing children with that. So it's just crazy. We had eight really strong years and very, very happy. Um, but yeah, it's it's a weird old world. But I ju you just now I just know that there is sort of a reason, there's a purpose, and I'm just doing what I have to feel as though I'm, I'm meant to do, really. But as I say, every morning I wake up probably you know like like us all with children I think it's the most important thing in the world and that's just my whole life and Alison I mean you spoke about the fact that you 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 seem quite um convinced by your decision at the time and subsequently that giving up acting focusing on your family that was that was the right course for you is there a, is there anything that you would have rewritten about what came next after Grange Hill no, I don't think so. Not really. I mean, as Linda said, I would, I'm an orphan. So I would, I would love my mum and dad to still be here. Um, I, you know, I was desperate for a daughter from all of the very first pregnancy. And I had three boys all in a go or in a row, should I say, I didn't have them all together. Um, and then um, I was desperate for a little girl and I wanted to show my mum that I had a little girl. And then she died um, before I had my daughter, but then I, I fell pregnant straight away after, and then I got my daughter, you know, after my mum died. So I, I believe that my mum sent my daughter. Um, and, yeah, so I, no, I don't think I would change anything, um, but I am getting to the stage now where I think it's my time now because all the kids are old enough. So, um, hence, I've gone into counselling. Um I have had a really, really blessed life. I've seen a lot of troubled people in my life as I've as I've grown up. Um, I suffered postnatal depression with the kid or with with two of the kids certainly, um, and just things that happen, you know, come along my way. On on Christmas Day, like fifteen years ago, um, there was a guy that was going to jump off a bridge, and I stopped the car and I got out and I spoke to him and talked him down sort of and you know I got my son who was only about six at the time and I was just like ring 999 tell him there's a jumper you know and so I you know the fact that just so many people like drug you know drug addicts and different things along the way and I just think it, that's my calling I, I I've had a really blessed life and now I want to give something back and um I am I've got so much empathy I am a real empathic person and I just want to help people. And hence, I've, you know, recently got involved in volunteering for um, um, a charity called Reach Out for Mental Health. So, um, again, yeah, you know, these there's so many people out there that are desperate to speak to somebody and they can't or they don't know how to 
or they, you know, they haven't got anyone in their lives that they can speak to. So this this charity, Reach Out for Mental Health, you you know, you can speak to somebody and you get an hour per week for 12 weeks. Um, it can go on if need be. And then you're like a befriender to somebody and they can tell you exactly whatever they need to tell you. You know, it can be bereavement or stuff along the way that's gone on in their lives. Um, and, you know, if I can be there to help people and give something back, that makes me happy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sticking with the mental health theme, um, I wondered if we could touch upon the challenges that come with transitioning to what is considered to be a regular life with regular jobs after being so well known as teenagers. Because if we, we you left in the kind of late 80s, if you cast ahead to the 90s and look at what happened to the likes of the Mickey Mouse Club uh, and all those other child stars of, that came out of Hollywood, so many of them ended up with mental health issues, drink and drug addictions. And I just wanted to know how you'd managed that transition without it costing you dearly? I think it's, it's going back to what we were talking about before, that we didn't have that sort of awe from people because there was nothing, it was sort of finished really, like Alison was saying, you know, there was no social media, you know, we didn't have um, the continued sort of uh, focus and spotlight. I know for me, it was my family because my dad and my mom are really grounded and, and, you know, we're really grounded family and I was just a worker and just went on to work. You sort of forgot about it really. And I think if there'd been that continued sort of adoration or, or sort of that massive spotlight that, like you got from those American stars, maybe, it might have been different. But I think here we do it a bit differently than the States. I think we, for me, I just went back to work and I just, you know, just went back to my day job, if you like. Um, so I was still acting. I'm still acting until I was probably early 30s. I went and did loads of um, theatre, musical theatre, because I trained at Italia Conti, so I was singing and dancing and everything. 
And then I, I, then I went into business. I, I, I got married in, uh, when I was 29 and I realized there was actually a bit of a gap to be a wedding planner. So I was a wedding planner for 12 years, but I was, I was driven by business really. I just wanted to like, you know, again, put a party on and do projects. And I was just sort of driven by this whole exciting thing that was happening with my life. It was like, oh, let's just think of another thing to do. And I did loads of stuff. I, you know, I, yeah, I did loads of stuff. But yeah, that, that to me was, was my lifeline. I just thought, no, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever get that, that sort of sidelined or sort of big headed or anything that, yeah, I don't think that. My, my mum and dad would never allow me anyway, even if I was that character I'm just not that character really I just got to sort of get on with stuff really I think I remember doing a program I think it was with um Esther Ranson and it was all about you know where are they now and 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 I remember sort of saying I think I can't remember it's Tina Charles I think was on with me and they were saying about child actors and being sort of quite well known when you're young you know you either sort of crumble and and it can really get to you or you just excel because actually if you've had a really strong grounding and and I'm sure we all agree like it was hard work you know Grange Hill was actually quite hard work and it was brilliant training ground and you had to be quite self-disciplined and I thought actually you know I've done what I was I don't know I felt quite sort of good when I came out of it because I had this massive training ground that sort of made me feel a bit more level-headed and grounded with with life I think really um yeah that's my character anyway, I suppose. You just sort of have to go with the person that you are. And was that the same for the for the rest of you guys? I mean, yeah, it was. I remember the, the day that I finished Grange Hill, you, it was quite a big thing because you knew it was all going to end really, really quickly. Um, but the good thing for me at that time, I think I finished when I was 17, 18, I was boxing. So I'd gone from there to the boxing. So that, that was all going to be left behind anyway, the acting. Um, so it didn't bother me. What when it was a bit of a struggle for me was when I was 21 and the, the boxing finished, and then I thought, do I want to get back into the acting? Um, and I did, and I did, and so I did bits. We all did the bill and stuff like that, but it wasn't as regular as what I was used to. And I was, I was thinking, okay, I've, I've had a break now, and the boxing's not worked out, so acting's the next best thing. And but it wasn't like a regular job. That's why I had to go and work for a, for a locksmith because I would get a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there, and that was soul destroying. And I remember working in a warehouse at the time, and I was putting keys in a bag, counting keys, and and it was announced on on the uh, on the radio that John Alfred had gone into uh, to London's burning, and I was mortified. I was like, I was this person who was trying to get TV work and and struggling doing a warehouse job and John had got this big job you know best of luck to him but it really hurt I was like you know that that's tough and then I did this thing with Nick Berry which was um was a, a one-off called Respect and I thought that's it you get this job it was a good job over a month and I thought I'm back in now I'm and then after that I was back putting keys in the so it can be soul destroying it's really difficult to to do and then I just give everything up and then got the locksmith and now I'm doing stuff now like EastEnders are doing a film at the moment with Peter Goddard. And because I'm not relying on it and I'm not wanting, I mean, I want it as much, but I'm not in need of it as much. It's nice when it comes. So for me, mentally now, it's a really nice time to go back into it. But I think for most of us, um, unless we give up completely at 17, said we don't want to act anymore, we're moving on. But I think a lot of us still had agents and wanted to do stuff. And from being in a programme that you was in work every day to then getting a 
in the bill or, a, or an advert here or something like that was was soul destroying from for all of us and people used to come up to me and go why are you not in eastenders now or why are you not working or why people expected us to to go to go on to something else and i think that was the later my late 20s was when it really affected me um and it yeah it did it did hurt that it never worked out properly but um, it's gone wrong reversal now, and now I'm doing stuff like EastEnders and doing films and stuff, so I'm enjoying it now. But it was tough. There was a tough period, definitely for me, and I'm sure for a few of the others as well. You know, for, for me, it was sort of, at least Lee's hit on it already, that we were we were the luckiest teenagers, but probably the unluckiest 20-somethings. Um, because, you know, the greatest will in the world, you know, your agents at the time were saying, look, there's not many good parts for people of your age. So, you know, we're going to we're going to hold off. We're not going to send you for this because, you know, you've got a profile that's up there and you, you just want to work, you know. And so sometimes it gets dictated to you that you've got all this experience at such a young age and yet nobody wants to trust you with it, you know. And so uh, for me personally, I left really suddenly under a cloud because obviously I was uh, for two years prior to me go, you know, t prior to, to Series 7, I was secretly suffering with Crohn's disease, which was a stress-related, a stress-related disease, and of course, we were the most stressed uh, teenagers in the country because most people think it was a, it was a fantastic life, but we we were living it, and Lee Lee, Lee well, they will all tell you that walking down the street could become uh, a joy, but it could also turn into something that was very sinister. You had to be on your guard the whole time. So again, you know, I was lucky enough. In what way sinister, Mark? Um, because we we were uh, we were teenagers, right? We were school kids, and you're a mentality at that age where other school kids see you as a threat, or they are jealous of what has happened to you. Okay, you know, we're the really lucky ones. We're we're the ones that picked, you know, and they think, oh, you're on. So the, the boys always try to pick a fight. And the girls that were with their boyfriends try to put, pick you up, which meant the boyfriends then want to pick a fight. And so you're then running through Kentucky Fried Chicken remember, out the back door, uh, trying to get away from everybody. But but no, and and, and quite right, it's like exactly the same as Lee. You find your your opportunities are um, sort of sliced in half, you know, completely taken away at some stage. For, you know, I had a fight of a different kind on my hand, but you know, for someone like Lee. Uh, well, Alison decided to take herself out of it, but I think we were, you, you, you know, that they could have gone on and, and done a lot more if they were given more of a chance, really. This was before, I mean, you tell me if I've got this right or wrong, but before the hours were set as they are now for child actors. So you would work longer than a 12, 13 year old actor on today's sets. Yes. And with all the work we're still in the world, even though legally, legally we were supposed to do X amount of hours here and so on and so forth, that never happened. Um, I mean, we were supposed to be in, um, being tutored and we were driving a motorised wheelchair around the donut of the BBC in the, in the, on the, <laughs> in the basement. That's what we were doing for education, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was it, that was it, well, you know. And, and to be fair, we, was, we were also living the dream. So we were all going to go on and be famous yeah. Yeah. that. So we didn't need education. What was that for? And also, I think, you know, you reference the fact that 
you know, you guys were flat out busy, right? And you're, you're child actors. You're not supposed to be working and yet you are. And Lee, you said it, you were working every day. It's almost like a false start to um, the realities of, of an actor's life, which is that 95% of actors don't work. And you almost had this kind of Narnia-esque experience straight off the bat going, well, where's it all gone? You know? That's the trouble, because I started when I was young. I did a series with uh, Mike Reed. He played my dad for a program called Noah's Castle when I was really young. And I'd worked quite a bit up until Grange Hill. And then Grange Hill, you, as an actor, you think that's how it's going to be. At that age, I just thought, I didn't want to do it. But at 21, when I wanted to go back to it, I just assumed that I would just go from job to job and be working constantly. And it isn't like that. And it is soul destroying. And um, and I would walk into auditions and they'd be like, Zamo, and they've already got a picture in the head of the character they want and they don't want that character that you are. So you would be typecast. And I think we, I stayed in it quite long. So by the time I left at 17, 18, I was always an adult. If you left, because I was a vi I was told to leave a couple of years early if I wanted to be an actor so that, the change would be between 14 and 18, you're going to, you know, you're going to change. And I got the storyline for the drugs and I wanted to take that and I stayed on. Um, but that was probably not a good idea in the fact that all of my early 20s, I got typecast as Zamo. It was just Zamo walking into a room before I'd even walked into the audition. Um, so, yeah, the, the working constantly in the typecasting was two really negatives for me in my mid-twenties to carry on. because so I still look like Zamo sort of now, but then I really look like Zamo, even at sort of 21, 22. Um, so it was just a bit of a nightmare and it was soul-destroying for, for a little period of time. I think that's why I, I decided to go into business because I didn't want to sit and wait for the phone to ring and not get good staff. And, and, and that's the problem, as you say, if you've worked really in, in exciting programmes and you've done really well and then suddenly it all starts drying up, it is soul-destroying, it really is. So I just thought, I'm just not, I'm going to try and do something else. Um, so, yeah, that's where I went. But then I went back into it, I, you know, presenting on QVC and stuff, which is great. Um, and as Mark said, it's like your training ground and you can use it for anything, for any sort of aspect of life and, and just use what you you got. And I know I got a lot from Brain Chill from that. Yeah, I think, as, as Lee said, um, if, if I could have a pound for every person that said to me, oh, you should be in EastEnders, I'd be rich. Um, <laughs> that's kind of what you did as well. I mean, I, I did London's Burning, I'd done The Bill, I did obviously, uh, I played Ethel. Um, but the amount of people that still say now, oh, you'll be perfect for EastEnders behind the bar or whatever. Um, and I'm much, I, you know, I'm in a better place now um, that I can really do whatever I want because the kids are sorted. Um, but as regards to, um, you know, keeping your feet on the ground and mental health, um, I think, you know, you, you just have to be honest with yourself. And, and I do believe your, your life is to a certain extent mapped out. You get, you know, you get these turnings in life, you go right or you go left and, you know, you take your pick and I, I'm a really positive person. And I really believe if you're positive about anything, you know, you can do it. Um, for instance, you know, Arthur, my son, was in IT for years. For five years, he left school and went straight into IT. And he kept coming home and he was really upset. Mum, I really don't like this. I'm really bored. I don't want to be messing about at the computer for years. And I was like, Arthur, it's a really good job. Like, wow, you're really good on computers. It's a great career. And, and he was like, no, no. And I got speaking to um, Julianne, actually, who, who I was still very, very close with, um, 
she played Diane Cooney in Grangeill, and her dad was a greengrocer supplying to the fruit, you know, fruit and veg throughout the industry of, um, you know, wholesale. And um, and I said to Arthur, I think that would be good, Arthur. Why don't you give that a go? And he was like, Yeah, all right. Yeah, I might. And then I got speaking to Julianne's dad, and we had a few meetings, and he trained Arthur up basically. I mean, Peter Steele is a legend. What an amazing man! Has been in the industry for so many years, um, and he trained Arthur up for six months. We backed Arthur. We, you know, we bought him his van, and and off he went. And he, he couldn't do it one day, and he said, oh, I, I can't get up there tonight, Mum. Can you go up there for me? So me and Dee, my husband, you know, we will just do anything. You know, you just got to do it, haven't you? So we went up there with the trolley, and we had our first order, and it was a box of mushrooms and a box of tomatoes. And that was all that was on our trolley. And I was pulling the trolley, and Dean was like, <laughs> I can't believe we're doing this. And Dean was really embarrassed about it, and I was like, what well, is fine and I actually loved it so you go out the market at like 12 o'clock one o'clock in the morning and and why everyone's asleep the whole world's coming to life and it, the the buzz is amazing you're going and and I always check the, the fruit and veg really well I'm giving it a squeeze make sure the peaches are good and you know turning it all around but it was taking me too long and then Arthur goes up there and he's like he has a little look and he does it so quickly I just believe that, you know, you take the path, you go right, you go left, you, you just have a go at everything and what will be will be. But positivity makes things happen, I think. I think it's fair to say that 2020 has been a year that no one could have predicted. So can you think of a moment or a time in your life when you could never have predicted what was about to unfold? I just think COVID. I mean, this this has got to be. <laughs> this is, I mean, who could have, you, you couldn't make this up. It's like, it's like a sci-fi movie or something. How on earth? I mean, it's so surreal. People are walking around in masks and I have to, I look at them and I think, oh my God, are we really all walking around in masks now? I just, you know, and, and I go back to saying to, to the kids, you know, if you can, cause my, my eldest has got his house and he's, I'm going to be a nan, by the way, in three weeks. No, Nanny, you're Nanny not. Addison, yes, granddad thing, yeah. <laughs> no way. Um, yeah, my eldest son, we don't know what it is. Um, so I cannot wait. We're hoping it's here before Christmas. Um, but, oh, you know. Congratulations, thank lovely. Thank you. Can't wait. But, you know, the fact that he can't go to um, the scans for, for his baby, which is it's just as important for the dad to go as the mum to go. I mean, I am devastated for him that he's missed out on, on all of those amazing scans. Um, yet you can go to work and you can eat in restaurants, you can sit so on the hard. train, but a father can't go and watch his newborn baby on the screen. So... I don't think there's ever going to be, I mean, I hope so because this is bad. I don't think there's going to be ever a worse time in my life or our lives than what's happening. You know, this is the weirdest thing ever. Um, Lee, Mark, any times that in your lives that you could never have predicted what was about to come? Uh, well, mine would be... Mine would be this year, probably, before... Um, just before COVID hit. I mean... Um, 
there's a jeweler in Covent Garden. So I was getting, I had all these plans to get married later in the year. So I'd, I'd been sorting all this out. And, um, and then the, the ring was being made up and I got a call on the, I think it was the 19th, Friday was the 20th of March on the 19th saying, you better come down because we might close to get the ring. So we was all booked in on the, I think I've got on the Saturday the 21st to propose. And the lockdown happened that weekend. So for me, my business was uh, in a worry in the fact I had to close my business. Um, and it was all all of a sudden as well. A couple of weeks before that, all the plans were going ahead. There was talk of a virus, but but it was that. I remember that weekend, I, I remember ringing around people going, I'm really in trouble. My business is going to close. I've got to pay mortgages. Um, I, I don't know where, where I go from here. So them couple of weeks were the worst couple of weeks ever. We were fortunately allowed to stay open and we have ticked over, but the wedding got cancelled. Obviously, that's going to be put off till next year. So for me, um, that that week when I had no idea this was going to happen, it happened within the space of a couple of days because I remember we had our plan to go. It was Jesse's birthday on the, on the 22nd, so we was going on the 21st. The week before, big shutdown. It was the biggest thing to hit me, and fortunately, I've come through it. And I really, really feel for the companies and the and the sole traders and the shops that have had to close because it's been a desperate time for them. But for me, that week, that week up to the the lockdown was was a nightmare, and it the whole year has been a nightmare for me. I'm okay, and I've got through it. I just feel for everybody that that has had to shut businesses, shops, and you know, and have have, have gone to the wall. I really, really feel for them people. But hopefully, the new year you know with the vaccines and stuff it's all positive but so many pe people have lost so much touch wood you know i've got through it fortunately with family and friends and stuff so uh fingers crossed for the future you're so right you know it's a year that we have literally been living on our wits hanging on by the skin of our teeth and for so many brilliant men and women who work incredibly hard they've lost livelihoods through no fault of their own yeah, just yeah, circumstance situation and then of course on a far more meaningful level, those that have lost loved ones to, to this virus. So please, God, get this vaccine rolled out, please. Amen to that. And Mark? I'm going to go different. I'm going to uh, sort of, you're saying not foreseeing something, is I'm going to take us back to our Grain Shield days when we were at the BBC Centre. And we used to sneak into the uh, top of the pops all the time. And if you ever go back to the, the 1980s, <laughs> uh, yeah, Lee knows, Lee knows. And you'll see Spandau Valley and you'll see somebody in a yeah. uniform right next door to them, you know. And um, this was this was just the most bizarre thing. And my claim to fame, really, was that one uh, afternoon we were in the ca in the canteen and uh, I was there sitting there eating my lunch and so on. And, and Billy no mates, as usual, sitting by myself. And these two guys come over to me and they say, do you, do you mind if we can can we have lunch? We, you know, sit with your table. I said, absolutely. No problem at all, buddy. They sit down and um, we start talking and he goes, hey, you're the guy for Green Chill, aren't you? And I goes, yeah, 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 yeah. He goes, oh, so they're filming that here today. I goes, yeah. I said, so what are you here for? And he goes, oh, we're, um, we're, we're debuting our single today on top of the pops. And I'm like, oh, really? I said, he goes, yeah. They, he said, they put us up in some crummy little bed and breakfast up on Shepherd's Bush Green. I thought, all oh, right. And I said, so um, he goes, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> Right. And he goes, um, can I have your autograph? And I said, of course, of course I can. Okay, yeah, yeah, there you go. Like, give me a napkin. And I, I said, okay. Uh, what's your name, buddy? He goes, George. So I tell you, right, to George. 
Best wishes, Mark Baxter, da, 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 Dwayne Granger. Thank you so much. And I goes, anyway, what's the name of this single you're putting out? He goes, it's called Wham Rap. It was George Michael. You know, that's the kind of thing that happens to you once in your lifetime. And so um, the rest is, I don't know whatever happened to them two, by the way, something, I don't know. But the one thing I will say to people out there and, and going back to Alison and, and Lee's points, which were really good, was that this year, um, if anything comes out, you know, if, if we've learned anything, is that old saying that people tell you all the time, that you only live once. Well, actually, that's not true. The fact is you only die once and you live every day. So please do it. Oh, Mark. Yes, absolutely, Mark. That's lovely. Oh, if I was allowed and we weren't on a remote screen, I'd bloody hug you for that. <laughs> Thank you. From a girl who sat on a sofa religiously watching you guys and learned so much from you, just a massive heartfelt thank you for giving up your time to talk to me. Um, you really have been beyond a pleasure. You've exceeded all my wildest dreams. And I've now got to go and phone Keith Lemon and Ben Shepherd to tell them what you're like in real life because they made me promise. <laughs> <laughs> so the legend lives on. <laughs> happy Christmas, everyone. Yeah, happy Christmas, everybody. Happy Christmas to you guys and, and a really healthy, very healthy and happy new year to you all. And um, I hope it's not the last time that we speak. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you very much, Kate. My huge thanks again to the cast of Granger. Wasn't that great? Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as always, this show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, alongside Michael Bartolomewicz for Yahoo UK with Callum Goddard-Mucklow co-producing and editing for us today. Uh, we'll be back with you with another show for next week. Until then, thank you so much for listening. And remember, over this festive period, wash your hands, stay safe, and do as we always do, and try to drink responsibly. Oh, and Merry Christmas. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.